The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of April 1st, 2019. On this week's show, we'll discuss college basketball's Zionless Men's Final Four and Yukon Full Women's Final Four. Then we'll hear from Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer about baseball's opening days, the messed up player market, and reasons to be excited about the new season. And finally, author Wayne Coffey will join us to discuss his new book, They Said It Couldn't Be Done, about the miracle New York Mets of 1969. Mets fan and Slate editorial director Josh Levine is off this week. Filling in for Josh is Mets fan Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hey, Mike. Hello. How are you? Good. And, and, don't we list all your books, Stefan? Come oh, on. We're getting there. Give me oh, a second. I got you. a whole bit queued oh, up oh, here, Mike. Oh, oh, God bless you. Got a whole um, bit queued how up. Am, how am I? Yes. I'm I'm well. Good. I'm uh, you know, the uh, the 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 final four is set and it's exciting. It's damn exciting. Yeah. All right. Can I make a suggestion for someone that you should interview on the gist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should interview this Josh Levine guy. He has a uh-huh. new book coming out in May. It's yeah. called The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. I understand that you can pre-order it now. I'm I'm 150 pages in. Me I too. Special, I think I I'm exactly 150 pages in also. It's pretty fucking amazing, isn't it? It's really good. It's yeah. really good. Yeah, okay. yeah. Again, the author's name is Josh Levine. Although he went with the Los Angeles Lakers color scheme. Maybe the LS... Oh, wait a minute. That's the LSU color scheme of the yellow and purple. Now I get it. Oh, the, the 70s font, though, yes. on the cover mm. is perfect. I'm a little but concerned. Enough about, but, but enough, enough about, about Josh. <laughs> yeah. I'm a little concerned because it's going to be going up against another book. It's called Upon Further Review, <laughs> The Greatest What Ifs in Sports History, edited by Mike Pesca with contributions from Josh Levine and me. It is just out in paperback. And I think every guest on the show except Lindsay also wrote a chapter in that book, coincidentally. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and we have, and we have, as a chapter in the book, John Calipari's. Uh, John Calipari is mentioned as a future governor of I don't know which state, but that's in the chapter that John Hawk wrote about Jerry Tarkanian getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. His Hall of Fame induction speech. So many connections. What if? Upon yeah. further review is the title of the book. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. All right, Mike, let's talk about the NCAAs. Mm. The four regional finals of the men's basketball tournament were decided by one, five, six, and six points. That was the lowest combined margin ever in the Elite Eight. Two of the games went to overtime. One of them, Virginia Purdue, was as crazy a game as you will ever see. <laughs> that was awesome. I mean, we'll talk yeah. about it. It Mike, was as crazy a game as Vir- as Purdue, Tennessee. Yeah, or, or yeah, Purdue, right Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike, I hate Duke as much as the next guy, but I have to say I was kind of bummed after the Blue Devils lost to Michigan State on Sunday, 68 to 67. If Zion Williamson was going to play college basketball. I wanted to keep watching Zion Williamson play college basketball. I really hope he does well on his finals at Duke, though. He'll have is more time that, to study. Yeah. Is that because if you hate Duke as much as the next guy, you hate Tom Izzo more than the next guy? Yes. Is that part of it? That is correct. I don't hate Tom Izzo. I think he's a, you know, he's a tough-nosed, blue-collar. No, that's not it. Yeah. Here's the reason. I did enjoy the Duke run and watching Zion, but I kept getting annoyed that the coach, Mike Krzyzewski, whose career is as great as any coach in the history of the sport— I got annoyed that he wasn't doing any, what's the word, coaching. Coaching? He wasn't doing anything. If if you get the first and second best, I don't know, maybe Ja will go second. But if you have in Barrett and Williamson, the first and second best players in college, and all you do with them is that. Isolate them? Which is like, let them play and maybe miss a shot and go for a rebound. I don't know what you're doing. And beyond that, the game before, the uh, Sweet 16 game, he... 
uh, did not draw a proper defense to the Virginia Tech inbound play that really should have at least sent the game into overtime with a, uh, not last second, last tenths of a second shot. I think that Mike Krzyzewski, of the eight coaches I saw, you can't make the case, I don't know, maybe Matt Painter of Purdue just told his amazing guard, Carson Edwards, hey, shoot it from anywhere, so I don't know how much great coaching was involved in that. But I do think of the eight coaches and the eight coaching jobs done in the Elite Eight, uh, Shashevsky was, you know, bottom quartile. No, and, and Tom, clearly not and, elite. And Tom Izzo was drawing up plays at the end of the game that allowed Michigan State to win. And this is an excellent point and something I wanted to talk to you about because Duke all season kind of looked young. I mean, Zion Williamson was crazy. I mean, he was 10 for 19 against Michigan State, 24 points, 14 rebounds. He was a constant dur- disruption on offense and defense. And yet the team looked young. And Krzyzewski, after the game, made it sound like there was nothing he could have done to make them play older. You know, we had some injuries during the season. It was a young group. We never got the young Mm -hmm. group together. They didn't mature enough. I mean, like, I don't quite understand that. I mean, you have the best players, as you said. Their last three games were decided by one, two, and one points. Yeah, and and beyond looking young, first of all, I believe uh, Calipari never has a veteran team, and he always gets them to rebound, but shoot threes. It's 2019. They had the worst, not a bad three-point shooting team for Duke. They literally had the worst three-point shooting team going into the tournament. I don't think they shot it as bad as uh, they were all during the year, but it was a very poorly constructed team. And some of it does come down to the fact that, you know, Marvin Bagley III reclassified, right? He could have been on the team, Mm -hmm. although he's not necessarily a wing player. But it just seems to have been a disservice to his great players not to give them plays, not to have done much. Hey, look, I'm not an expert, and I'm sure that someone could say, actually, there was a lot more going on than I realized. Doesn't seem like it to me. Doesn't seem like it when you're, you know, escaping by the skin of your teeth against uh, the last two opponents. Seems like it wasn't a great job. And and look, Mike Krzyzewski's getting old, and when coaches get old, and when anyone gets old, they uh, lose a step or half a step, and maybe it's the case that when you recruit as great as you do, and also when the ball is rolling and you keep uh, establishing what you are at Duke, maybe, you know, the fire doesn't burn like it did and you're not out thinking guys as much as you're out recruiting them and, you know, throwing the balls out there and let it happen. Now, what's going to happen? Oh, uh, one more thing about this. uh, And we could also point to the uh, coaching. Bad coaching to get in a position where when you were fouling late, you weren't even close to getting Michigan State in the bonus. It is a weird aspect, and Josh uh, talks about this a lot. It is a weird aspect of basketball that you have this rules violation to help you that you could put the other team on the line. But since that is a weird aspect, teams know and I've watched many games yeah I've watched many games when a team has three team fouls which should be to their credit they're playing clean basketball but you know okay there are three team fouls we have fouls to give so you give them before the final 20 seconds six minutes to go in the game or at least two minutes or two minutes right yeah what's going to happen inevitably and has already started happening is that these games will be viewed as a referendum on one and done players because you know of course you want to recruit the best high school players but Two one-and-done heavy teams, Duke and Kentucky, lost. The four survivors into the Final Four are all heavy with upperclassmen. Texas Tech starts two graduate transfers. Duke started four freshmen, three of whom are going to be going to the NBA. And Krzyzewski, again, said after the game that Michigan State played older than Duke did. Is it a crapshoot or is it, you know, is is one-and-done just flawed and there's nothing that even Mike Krzyzewski could do to overcome it? I don't think it has anything to do with one and done because yeah. I look at the Calipari teams. Yeah, there is something to veteran cohesiveness, but I think that I, I think if you ask twelve great coaches or fifty okay coaches, do you want the greatest talent, uh, talented nineteen-year-olds, or do you want good but cohesive twenty-one-year-olds? You'd give the lip service to the twenty-one-year-olds, but, but your you would eyes would light up players, at all yes. those mixed. Give me those McDonald All-Americans. Don't give me very good. Give me give me the one and two players in the yeah. draft. See what I could do with them. Yeah, no, please, please give me the three-star recruits instead of the five-star recruits. That's what I'm going for at Duke and Kentucky and every other top school. Yeah. Um, Virginia has made the final four and one, you know, this is a year after, of course, they lost as a one seed to UMBC, the 16. What I like is that Tony Bennett, the coach of Virginia, he seems like a genuine, decent person and he embraced the failure, not as some bullshit mantra talking point, but just in kind of an honest way, like, hey, we lost. 
we needed to be better. We were terrible. And here we are. And they're in the final four. Yeah. And the thing is that I thought that uh, UVA is always going to have these problems because they emphasize defense so much and then they get into these tight situations and where are you going to get the offense? And I guess the answer is Kyle Guy, who is, by the way, a McDonald's All-American, though not last year of a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. He was in Lonzo Balls', Balls class. And maybe that's credit to Bennett to get him to stay, although, you know, maybe the market also dictated that he should stay. And it, it seems to me that he does have, he obviously the pack line defense uh, is a great defense, but it does seem to me that he has done enough to unleash his uh, offensive players like uh, Guy and Hunter. Hunter didn't have a great game offensively to give him enough. And the other great thing about UVA and what they did is that that shot by uh, Mamadou Dikite, mm-hmm. Dikite to tie it was amazing. And usually you go, you go into overtime with that amazing shot and then lose, but they won. That was such a fantastic game. It was, it was really, I, was, I don't usually scream on the couch. I yeah. screamed a couple times. Yeah, at that the was couch. a screamer. That I was mean, a screamer no matter what your bracket said. Purdue yeah. uh, point guard. And by the way, Edwards. by the way, the second time in the tournament where yeah. down three, a guy is shooting three to tie. That's crazy. Down three with like two seconds left. That was crazy. It was crazy. Uh, Carson Edwards' performance was crazy. At the end of regulation, do you know what his stat line was? What? 40 points, one rebound, zero assists. Oh, so the triple double. I mean, <laughs> such an insult, right? <laughs> so so you're you're telling me he's a totally selfish player. <laughs> <laughs> he finished with 42. He was flinging it from curry distances. Yeah. Um he did hit a shot from the center court logo, but when you really look at the logo, it it's a little too big. <laughs> uh, court, it, yeah. It's a big logo. I mean, the yeah. NCAA it has edges. Need, it goes the NCAA there, yeah. needs to brand itself. So it's understandable. Uh, Andy Staples on Sports Illustrated noted that Edwards' 42 points were more than Coppin State and William & Mary scored in total against Virginia this season. And yeah. one one fewer than Clemson scored. Well, I mean, Virginia? Michigan Michigan had sixteen at halftime in its elite game, <laughs> in its elite eight game. Edwards was crazy. Edwards beat Glenn Rice's record for three point shooting. Of course, Glenn Rice played every game he could in the tournament. His four games is amazing. Yeah. Well, the defense you mentioned Michigan losing with forty four points that was against Texas Tech. Um, who has like one of the top five or six defenses in the country this season. Um, I read a profile of Texas Tech. They beat Gonzaga in the Elite Eight. Um, Mm -hmm. Sorry, Gonzaga, poor Gonzaga. Um, Against Michigan, Michigan shot one for 19 from three against these guys, 14 turnovers. Um, They didn't get to 30 points until there were eight and a half minutes left to play in this game. And everyone's talking about Texas Tech's defense. I mean, I think the, the one thing I said earlier about the two graduate transfers helps them a lot. But this defense thing by Coach Chris Beard, their their system is real. I read a, the yeah. profile of Chris Beard on The Athletic, and they implemented this side defense a year ago in 2017-2018, and I don't understand basketball defenses particularly. Oh, this was very well explained, but boy, it really worked. They well, I'm going to say... Th- yeah, sorry. I'm no, no. Yeah, I'm a St. John's fan. So Tariq Owens played for yes. St. John's. Now he's on Texas Tech. He was he was fine on defense. I mean, he has he's a, a, an athletic guy, but he wasn't some sort of stopper. And when he left the team, St. John's fans weren't saying, "Oh my God, where are they going to replace his defense?" He goes to Texas Tech. He makes one of the great plays, uh, assisted maybe by a semi blown call. But he's fantastic on defense. So that tells me it's something about coaching. Uh, the other thing about Texas Tech is. I think they have a little bit on the show. We've talked about the Blake Bortles thing. Does the fact that his name is Blake Bortles mm-hmm. affect perception of him? You, you I think something's that. going yeah. on. I think something's going on with Lubbock because there are many cities in the United States that have like a quarter million people and are relatively isolated, but none get shit upon like Lubbock does. <laughs> Maybe it's just how the word Lubbock sounds coming out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. But people love saying, "Oh my God, they're from Lubbock." So we got the uh, Lubbock entry into the Final Four. Of uh, the other team we haven't talked about in the final four is Auburn, uh, Bruce Pearl, kind of poster boy for what's wrong with college basketball. But everything that's right as well. But also everything that's right as he well. He is the embodiment. He is college basketball. Yeah. Um, he had a show cause order as a coach when he was at Tennessee. He couldn't coach for a few years. Current team, one of Pearl's assistants, Chuck Person, Two players were in, were implicated in this FBI silliness uh, investigation. Uh, Ira Bowman, former Penn player, 
was another parole assistant. Assistant. Um, he was suspended because he was involved with the the uh, taking bribes with his former uh, teammate and, and coach <laughs> at Penn, Jerome Allen. Um, oh my god! And Pearl said Thursday, it's not a cesspool. Yeah, I basketball. like. I like how we, you and I, look at the Final Four, and it's obviously through the pens, the pen slash St. John's, John's lens. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So yeah. Th- that's Pearl. Those are his assistants. I guess uh, that's the before swine part is his staff. <laughs> uh, does here is my question: in the Final Four, um, uh, UVA is just a better team on paper than Auburn. Auburn's good, but UVA should be better. Auburn, I think, psychologically was helped, and maybe in terms of uh, Kentucky's preparation that Chuma Okiki was out. I don't know if they run on fumes. I don't know if the absence of Okiki hurts them because he does some things that those other guards can't do. And I know, you know, it's like Kevin Ware and you're playing for the Feld teammate, but Okiki was more important to that team, I think, than Ware was Louisville a couple years ago. Um, They played pretty damn well in beating Kentucky in the Elite Eight. They did get a crazy game from their backcourt. Yeah, I mean, and it was also, I don't know, are we saying this was the fourth best game? It would have been the best game most weekends. Yeah. Um, My other parting thought um, about the NCAs is that watching these games over the weekend, how the fuck can't these people not be paid? I mean, oh, it gave me a lot of entertainment. I'll tell you, it sure did. It gave me more entertainment than uh, Chuck and uh, Spike and uh, their new pal Jim Nance. I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, I'm getting a little tired of those commercials. Um, both a Democratic Senator Chris Murphy and a Republican Congressman uh, Mark Walker have basically come out and said that players should be compensated. Shashevsky uh, didn't quite go there, though he implied it. He said that. He, that there should be a new model in college basketball. And that's what he's really saying is that they should be paid. And yeah. the evolution of Mike Krzyzewski, this is a good thing. I mean, you know, these developments in Mike Krzyzewski's career, <laughs> one and done players, a little less sanctimony about who these college basketball players are and who they come from and what they deserve to have. That is a good thing. If he would only speak up even more loudly and yeah, say, you know, let's just pay them, that would be even better. I guess you could say that just as Mike Krzyzewski stopped coaching, he started feeling. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, let's talk about the women's tournament. Two spots in the final four are set. UConn advanced for a 12th straight time. Oregon for a first time. The two others were to be decided Monday night after we taped this show. Defending champ Notre Dame is playing Stanford and Iowa against Baylor. Lindsey Gibbs writes for Think Progress. She's a co-host of the women's sports podcast, Burn It All Down. She joins us from Greensboro, North Carolina, where she will be attending the later game. Hey, Lindsay. Hi. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. The Elite Eight was all one in two seeds, and yet this has been billed as a year of growing parity in women's basketball. UConn was not one of the one seeds, which was weird given that they were 31 and two in the regular season. But in a piece in Slate, uh, John Bronstein made a case for why that wasn't the wrong call a combination of a weak schedule, closing gap in recruiting, and maybe UConn coach Gino Oriema failing to adapt a little bit. They have played some close games in this tournament. <laughs> Yeah. But here they are just, again. He They're just has failure four. written all over he himself. He does. Yeah, He's only been to like, failure, what, yeah. 20 Final Fours now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I think UConn absolutely deserved the number two seed. And I'm also not at all surprised that they're in the Final Four. It's a little bit of both. They beat the team they beat in the Elite Eight, Louisville. Louisville had beaten them in the regular season, you know. So it, they're, they're acting like they were really slighted and that they're big underdogs. But in, in reality, that's not true. <laughs> Neither one of those are true so yeah but it, you know it, yeah it's so exciting to see them back again of course it's always a great story and it didn't matter like the one and the two it was a collision course between louisville and yukon and there we had it it literally made no difference maybe you can argue that a second or third round opponent would be more or less 
uh, uh, formidable against UConn. But of course, that would put stock in the committee's seating prowess. And if the whole premise is that UConn was poorly seated, then why would you think the committee would have gotten the seven seed right? Anyway, of all, what I'm trying to say <laughs> is, of all the things that have ever been a controversy, UConn only getting the five seed, which was no different than the two seed, uh, only, be, only being ra- <laughs> right, only being ranked the fifth best team right. instead of the fourth best team, which had absolutely zero practical effects, is the least uh, controversial <laughs> thing I can ever remember in college but basketball. They're very much playing the you know New England Patriots. Nobody believed in us card, right? right. Oh my like, god! No, no. Uh, everyone still thinks you can absolutely win this year. It's just based on the regular season. You deserve the two seed. <laughs> like these right, two things they, are not. And there, were, there was also a smattering of stories about how Nafisa Collier, a UConn's great senior, was snubbed and not included as one of the finalists for the Player of the Year award. So more sort of nonsense bulletin board material. They're really playing the persecution con- concept, but look, it, it seems to be working for them. So, you know, whatever works. Gino's yeah, very the good only, at that. The only thing I would say that's, I don't, I don't know what to make of it. The reason it is justified that they weren't given a one seed, but it's because their division is not good, is right. not as good as the other divisions. But that is something I think in, you can't punish UConn for playing in the division they're playing in. And the fact that they're playing in the American East is probably globally, you know, a good thing in terms of not letting uh, football lead you down the road of bad conferences. So I do think that you have competing ideals. We want a strong strength of schedule. It's not like Gino Oriema doesn't do everything he can in the games that he has the ability to schedule, to schedule all the best teams. So it is a little unfair that they're punishing them for being in a bad conference that they don't have a control over and that it's probably good that they're in a bad conference. But then again, that's why I think that you know going to the Final Four is great revenge. Well, and I don't think that it's all the conference. Though. Like I said, they lost to Louisville in the regular season. You you beat Louisville, you're probably number one seed, right? So, like, mm-hmm. there was plenty that was in their control this season. It's not like they had a perfect record and were given the two right. seed, you know? Right, right, right. Lost and they, Bale, they lost just Louisville. maybe just aren't as good as previous UConn teams, and you're measuring them against that standard. Um, but there have been some, like, amazing performances so far individually in this tournament, and it does reflect that, hey, there are – Eight really good teams in women's college basketball. It is not quite as top-heavy as it's historically been. Uh, there was that crazy Sweet 16 game, Arike Agumbawale of Notre oh. Dame. Last year's <laughs> hero had 34 points. Kennedy Carter, whom I really admire because she spells her name C-H-E-N-N-E-D-Y, of yeah. Texas A&M had 35. That was a freaking awesome game. Uh, Katie Lou Samuelson of Connecticut had 29 on Sunday. Um, in the win over Louisville, Sabrina Ionescu of Oregon is unconscious. And for anybody who hasn't watched much college basketball, uh, women's college basketball, she is a revelation. She is. She's a triple double queen. Just more uh, triple doubles than anyone in NCAA history, men or women. She's just a junior. <laughs> if she decides to uh, go to the WNBA this year, she will be the number one pick. She is the next huge name in women's college basketball, like in in the WNBA. She's she's a superstar. Triple doubles kind of stink, I think. I think they're overrated. But in this context, <laughs> they absolutely... Well, I mean, you know, when when um, they're being chased as the stat to chase and when totally, you... Yeah. yeah, when when you uh, get 14 points and you because you're going for assists instead of baskets. But they do accurately describe a total game and she has a total game. And, you know, I don't know. She seems like the kind of player who you add her to any team and it, it makes it a lot better. And some of the greatest superstars she makes every uh, cliche everyone around her better but i don't know if i don't know if griner had that you know i don't even know if maya moore had that she's such a great player and she makes others better by attracting attention but sabrina seems to be the kind of player who is the ver- very much the magic johnson of women's basketball yeah and you alluded to the fact that she may come out and 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 leave after her junior year which is not unprecedented in women's basketball and we shouldn't be surprised then she should come out and play professionally she is ready to play professionally if she's yeah. ready to leave college Godspeed, play in the NBA. Um, Lindsay, one thing that sort of continues to piss me off, it pisses me off every year, is that the NCAA schedules women's games at the 
stage of the tournament at the same time as men's games on Sunday, Oregon, Mississippi State, which was awesome. I mean, that Sabrina Ionescu game, she just took over. They were draining threes. It was back and forth. Mississippi State had been to two finals in a row. It was a great game. It was scheduled at the same time as Auburn, Kentucky on the men's side. I just don't get this. Well, look, I mean, you have ESPN doesn't have the rights to the men's tournament. So it's kind of based on whatever windows ESPN is wanting. And, you know, I, I can go on a big rant about how both the NCAA and uh, ESPN, both of who you would think would have a vested interest in the women's game uh, succeeding, because yes. like I said, ESPN's the right holder. They don't always make the decisions that are best for the game itself. Now, I don't think that you can always schedule around the men's like sometimes that's going to happen. And I don't think it's the worst thing in the world, but I do think that overall a lot of scheduling decisions don't seem to be in the best interest of uh, the women's tournament. I wanted to watch both games. I ended up watching more of Oregon, Mississippi state, and then went to Auburn, Kentucky later because the men's games last longer. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it was just the way it was scheduled that that one went went a little bit longer, but yeah, it was, it it can be frustrating because you want to watch it all, especially like you said, at this point in the, tournament and what you what you mentioned about parody you know yeah you look at one versus two and think well that's not really parody so were there no us upsets there were tons of upsets in the first two rounds what happened the sweet 16 went completely chalk and that's because there have been seven teams this season that have been way better than everybody else but they're all kind of equally as good you can see any of them winning the championship and the eighth team is iowa which has megan gustafson who is the player of the year another player which if you haven't seen her watch her uh if you can she's going to be a star on the next level too The thing that uh, pisses me off and has pissed me off for a while is the women seem to be a generation behind in terms of statistics. So we were talking about INSQ and in doing research for the segment, I said to myself, I wonder what her usage percentage is. That's that shouldn't be too big an ask in 2019. I don't see that stat anywhere. Maybe someone could direct me to it. And even the uh, even the Ken Palm, he doesn't do women's. He's just one man. He he's a he's a meteorologist. I understand. I'm not blaming him. But it seems like as the NCAA men's statistics are getting to a really useful, interesting place, the women's statistics. Again, a, an article on the the greatest stats about Sabrina Ionescu is her counting stats, assists, and points, and those are impressive. But it's again 2019. There should be a lot better ways to get an idea about what these players are doing. And I've got to think that if they put in the investment, whoever the they is, and the NCAA could be part of the they, they put in the investment, it would yield rewards because there are a lot of statistically minded people who aren't put off by this stuff. They're drawn into it by this stuff. And and let me give a plug for herhoopsstats.com, which is a a site that has phenomenal women's, uh, women's basketball stats. And you're right. It's the only resource out there i get so infuriated because i'll be on you know i i maybe i'm old school but i i like the yahoo sports app it's kind of the easiest to navigate for me and i can get the scores for all the women's games easily but if i click on them they're not showing me the stats i can't tell you know in in the middle of the games who for the um women's college basketball who's scoring the most points i can't get the the box score and that's infuriating in in live time you want to be able to see that stuff it helps tell stories and you can you know that's that's a big part of it right it just helps us get a better picture of what's going on i don't need stats to know that gino oriama and notre dame coach (laughs) muffet mcgraw hate each other yeah so i'm rooting for them to play in the semifinal yeah i don't think you're alone in that never uh you know if you're looking for warm fuzzies that is not the matchup you go to but if you're looking for drama and a lot of intrigue between two of the best coaches around whoo does the notre dame uconn matchup uh give you all of that and more Lindsay gibbs writes about sports for think progress and is the co-host of the women's sports podcast burn it all down you should read her recent profile of notre dame women's basketball coach muffet mcgraw which is titled muffet mcgraw is done hiring men we'll post a link on our show page Lindsay is going to be back for our Slate Plus bonus segment. To listen to that conversation, you need to go to Slate Plus. It's just $35 a year, and you get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Lindsay, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you in a bit. Sounds great. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The 2019 Major League Baseball season began last Thursday. It also began on March 20th with two games in Tokyo where Ichiro Suzuki of the Seattle Mariners retired in the eighth inning of the second game. That was really cool. But it is old news. Ben Lindbergh is here to talk about other baseball things. Ben writes for The Ringer. He is the co-author with Sam Miller of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, and he is the co-author with Travis Sawchick of a new book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. It'll be out in June, but it is available for pre-order now. Ben, we need to shorten your bio. I know it keeps getting longer. Well, I'm happy to be back and I'm happy that baseball is back. All right, and doesn't he like blather on about video games and emo <laughs> bands? Yeah, he does that it's too. It's unbelievable. Uh, I it's multitask. Weird. He does. Yeah, I guess you're like, a, you're very toolsy, but I think you need to just start uh, swinging from your butt. Five or uh-huh. too many. Five tools, clearly too many. We're going to get it down to two or three. All right, Ben, let's start with the messed up labor market. Uh, Bryce Harper, Manny Machado weren't signed until spring training began. Then they got huge deals. And Mike Trout got the record deal, a 12-year, $430 million contract extension. That means he will probably never be a free agent in his career. A bunch of other players also were extended before free agency, but at well below their current market values. The main example, Cy Young Award winner Blake Snell of Tampa. The Rays renewed his contract for the minimum amount. He complained. The team fined him. And then they offered and he accepted a five-year deal at well below market value because he had no options. Baseball has a labor problem and coincidentally a labor contract that expires next year. Yes, December 2021 is actually when it expires. So we're stuck with this for a while. So there's been this rash of extensions recently, seemingly because a lot of players have decided that they'd rather not be free agents. They'd rather avoid the whole ordeal. And there are a couple veteran free agents who are still free agents, Dallas Keuchel and Craig Kimbrell. So one of the best closers of the last several decades and a recent Cy Young winner, both still looking for teams. And it's hard to say whether that's because they've asked for for too much or they haven't been offered enough. But we've seen now for a, a couple seasons, salaries have just been stagnant. The average salary in Major League Baseball has not gone up, has actually decreased a little bit. And you could make the case that maybe it was increasing at an unsustainable rate prior to that, but it has stopped now and even receded a little. And it seems to be because teams have decided that they're not going to pay 30-something players as if they're going to keep producing as if they were 20-something players, which is something that they did for years and years. And also there's been this decoupling of profits and revenue and results on the field because you have teams getting all this supplementary income from revenue sharing and broadcast contracts and MLB advanced media, all the digital arm of baseball. And so now you no longer really need to invest as much to make sure that you make a profit that people buy tickets because you're already sitting pretty before you even start playing the games. Yeah. So counter argument, I'm not going to say that the labor situation is just, but it is logical. Um, It's logical in the sense that the best closer in the game deserves a big contract. But are we sure that if you look at the history of closers who aren't named Mariano Rivera, that the the back ends of whatever contract Craig Kimbrell wants are going to be a bunch of wasted money? Keiko, I don't understand as well. And it is logical that Blake Snell doesn't get paid by the Rays because maybe their counteroffer is, you realize you play for the Rays, right? So there is a lot of ill... I I know that, I think almost that we're, we're in a median and mean problem that I do think that the average salary should just go up as a percentage of the amount of money that's poured back 
to labor. And yet I don't know that the exemplars of the injustice are really good poster children. I feel a little bad for Dallas Keuchel in that in other eras he would be paid justly. But Machado got a fine deal and Harper got a fine deal. And so what? They had to wait a week and a half. And Trout, through his beneficence, gave his team a good deal. But just Mm -hmm. in terms of psychology, you know, the marginal value of someone's $12 million is much less than his $10 million. So for what Trout wanted, Trout got what he wanted. I don't think it's as dire as maybe Stefan laid out. Well, I I would counter your counter argument by saying that the problem isn't Machado and Harper getting and Trout getting what they deserve on an open market. They no, were compensated I the, fine. I know what the problem is. The problem is, the pa- is the that problem Aaron is Judge, Aaron Judge is making $600,000 a year. The problem that is, is that... That is where the extreme inefficiency the, is. The player control for those early years are so right. much below market. And I think this ties in with a piece that you wrote recently, Ben, about how we are watching the very best players in the history of baseball play baseball. And right. the fact is that there are more players in their early to mid-20s who are not just good and are going to be potentially great. They are great right now, and they are not getting compensated right now, and therefore teams will continue to have the ability to, in this new way of paying players, sort of shortchange them now and shortchange them on the back end. Yeah, I wish I could counter the counter to the counter there, but I actually <laughs> agree with you guys. I'm sorry. You're like Beto yeah. O'Rourke. You're jumping on the counter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think you're right. And maybe that seems obvious because, of course, baseball players are better than they used to be. Everyone's better at everything than they used to be, well, for the most part. But I think that in baseball specifically, you need to make that case and you need to support that case because baseball fans, probably more than any other type of fan, seem to believe that maybe players today aren't better than they used to be that the legends of the past were even better or just as good. And it's just not true. You look at the the size of the talent pool and it is continually increasing and there are some statistical methods you can use to prove it. It's hard to prove because it's not like track and field where you have these objective record times that keep getting broken. All the player performance is relative to players of the time. And so it's kind of hard to see when you just look at the stats, but you can see it. And you're right. We're seeing this great youth movement now. Young players are better than ever before. There have been improvements in player development, which is what my book is about, book plug, but also a lot of other differences in the game that have led to young players being better than ever. And so more and more of the production is concentrated in these young guys. And these young guys are not getting paid because that's how the whole economic system of baseball is set up. And that worked for a really long time because you could count on those older guys really cashing in when they got to free agency. Now that is not so certain. And so, and that will be the the big thing that the Players Association has to correct in the next round of collective bargaining is how do you get players paid earlier in their careers? So I think you are absolutely right in terms of looking back at the past. And Joe Posnanski put out a poll and talked about it with Mike Shore in his podcast where he asked uh, listeners and readers, compare the greatest of this era to the greatest of a past era. And uh, in all different sports, so in basketball, he said, compare LeBron to Michael Jordan. And most people, it was about 50-50. And in, uh, in hockey, I think, I think he said, compare uh, Sid Crosby to maybe Gretzky. And, and I think more people said Gretzky, but not by a lot. Compare Messi, Messi to Pele. A lot of people said Messi. But when he said compare Mike Trout to Babe Ruth, it was overwhelming. Babe Ruth's the better player. <laughs> right. But of course... But, of course, Mike Trout's the better player. I mean, he's not obese, first of all. <laughs> you know, he could get the balls in the outfield. Like, <laughs> taking taking nothing away from Babe Ruth, a, a statement we always have to make these days. But, like, Mike Trout's better. He's just, if you, if you showed film, if you could dig those old guys out of the grave and say, hey, look at that guy in center field, they go, oh, my God. Well, Adam Adovino said he would strike out Babe Ruth every time he played again, every yes, time he faced we, him. But then did you, see, did, you see, did you see that the Yankees put out a little video so that Adam Vino could apologize at the altar of Babe, of Babe Ruth. Right. Adam it's Vino a really it's, this, this backlash, this controversy when he said that the Babe couldn't crazy. hack it in baseball today. And, and subsequently, he signed with the Yankees. And so he had to do this apology tour where he walked it back. And, oh, OK, maybe the, the Babe could actually.
actually hit pretty well. I mean, it's, right. I don't think he would strike him out every single time because <laughs> Babe Ruth was unbelievably good relative to the players of his time. But the players of his time were so much worse than they are today that there's almost just no comparison. And I mean, Adovino is known for this really freaky slider he throws and pitchers didn't throw sliders at all back when Babe Ruth was playing. And that's to say nothing of the fact that there was a, a color barrier and no one was you know, getting into the game compared to today. So it's a right. silly debate, but in baseball, we cling to the past and history is obviously an asset. It's something that baseball has going for it even more than the other sports do, but sometimes it can kind of be this weight that's dragging it down. To quote Adam Adovino, shout out to Babe Ruth. Um, <laughs> there's still yeah. a lot. There's a, still a lot of moaning going into the season about the pace of play and pitcher dominance. MLB and the players' union agreed to some rules changes. Um, inning breaks are going to be a little shorter. Mound visits reduced from six to five next year. Twenty-six man rosters and a minimum number of batters that pitchers will be required to face. Um, and then there's some even weirder tinkering going on in the Independent Atlantic League that MLB gave them a bunch of money, I guess, to um, let them to force them to experiment. The craziest of which is moving the pitcher's mound back two feet to 62 feet, six inches in the second half of the season. Do you think that these rules will have some effect, Ben? I think that these rules probably won't have a big effect because it's a lot of bullet points, but when you really boil it down, the most significant of them is that pitchers will have to face at least three batters in an appearance unless they're ending an inning, which really doesn't even affect that many appearances anymore. Teams have kind of moved away from that anyway, but I think this is all sort of significant just as a gesture, just to show that MLB is actually taking this stuff seriously, that they are talking to the players about changes that can be made because for years, baseball just didn't change anything. There's this great contrast between baseball teams, which have been very much on the cutting edge and experimenting and innovating, and then the league itself, which just has refused to change any rules, really any significant rules that would affect, say, strikeouts in decades. And so I think this is a sign that they're actually willing to do some things now. They're testing some things. Some of the stuff they'll be doing in the Atlantic League are things that we've all been clamoring for, at least to try out, to test. They'll be testing robot umps for, uh, among other things. So change is uh, coming. It's sort of slow, and I don't think it's going to manifest itself this season. But I think they've acknowledged that this stuff isn't going to fix itself because that's always the hope that like the hitters will counter and they'll figure out the pitchers, and then it'll just be this pendulum that swings one way and then another way. But we're at like 12 consecutive seasons now of the strikeout rate increasing, and pitchers are just throwing so hard and with such nasty movement that it's just not going to correct itself without someone intervening. I uh, I bemoan the loss of the uh, loogie and the rugie. I guess they're now going to be latugies and ratugies, which are fine. <laughs> Tony Larusa got out of the game at just the right point for that. I I ask you this: this could be a contest. What are the paradoxes that would make the robot ump say does not compute and have a meltdown? Because as we know. Robots are very susceptible to paradoxes. <laughs> and which robot do you want behind the plate, I think, is another uh-huh. question that needs to be answered. Yeah. Like, UXL or... Uh, yeah, like Buck, you want... Yeah. Uh, what's yeah. the Buck Rogers robot? Twinkie? Twinkie? Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, you still need an umpire back there, so we won't actually have some big metal Damn. machine man behind well, the plate. Well, what about a Westworld-type situation? Yeah, right, or, the guy, yeah. Or, the, or the robot from Sleeper. Or something. You want to go yeah. back even further <laughs> right. in time. Camouflage it. But yeah. right now, it's probably just going to be an earpiece that's feeding the answer to the ump, because you still need him back there for like plays at the plate and foul tips and other kinds of calls. But I think, I mean... <laughs> But Earl Weaver's still going to charge out of the dugout and scream (laughs) to get his players going. Turn his hat backwards. (laughs) Everyone wants robot umps because we all get angry when an umpire blows an obvious one, and that would go away. But there really are some complications, and I'm not sure that I want robot umps anymore. Not for any, like, nostalgia or the, the human element, just for tradition's sake, but there are some benefits to the human element. The umpires actually kind of adjust the strike zone as a plate appearance goes on. So the plate, so the strike zone on 3-0, for instance, is a different size from the strike zone on 0-2, which sounds ridiculous and terrible, and we should just have the same strike zone on, on every pitch. And yet it kind of gives an advantage to the player who is down in that plate appearance. So if you're a pitcher and you're up 0-2, well, then the zone shrinks and the batter kind of gets a, a leg up on the next pitch. And so I think that actually helps a little bit. It would totally change 
change catching because you have receiving just wouldn't matter anymore. All of that technique and skill would just be wiped away. On the other hand, you would not have the occasional pitch right down the middle that is called a ball and and people would probably be less upset all the time. Although you have to wonder because if you use the actual rule book strike zone, there are some rule book strikes right now that never really get called strikes. They're just like curveballs at the bottom of the zone and you can't really hit them, but technically they actually do pass through the strike zone. So if that starts being called a strike every time, then you're going to get hitters mad and everyone will continue to be upset. I'm, I'm sure that people will continue to be upset and yell at either the umpires or the robots, whichever comes next. I think the optimal would be robot umps, but don't tell the players. Right. Because, yeah, the <laughs> players still need someone to talk to. Where was that blue? A little inside? Okay. Yeah. You know, it's just to calm them down. Psychological yeah. question. If you just put robot umps in place and you didn't tell anyone, would they argue just as much? Would fans be just as upset yeah. because they think yeah. that calls are going against their team? I bet they would. <laughs> Uh, ben, would Bernie Sanders campaign against them in the Midwest? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the National League is stacked, Ben. The American mm-hmm. League is stacked with the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the Astros. What are you looking forward to uh, playing out over the season? Yeah, you asked me uh, about specific things I'm looking forward to about baseball, and usually I, I look forward less to specific things than just like how effectively it, it fills the emptiness in our lives in our because lives. Mm-hmm. it's just always there for three hours a day. But I think that is one of the more exciting things. The National League is really exciting this year. There's a lot of balance and parity there. And it, it, things have kind of reversed themselves because a few years ago, all the NL teams were rebuilding. And so you had a couple good teams and a, a bunch of terrible teams. And everyone said the NL is unwatchable. And now those rebuilding teams got good again. And now suddenly everyone's good in the NL. The NL East and the NL Central are really, really tight from top to bottom. On the other hand, the AL is kind of a, a tire fire right now because you have maybe four or five good teams and then everyone else is now in their rebuilding phase in that league. And so it seems like you're not really going to have any races in the American League except for maybe the second wild card. You just have these Titans, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Astros, and it's hard to imagine how they'll actually lose. But we're always wrong about which teams. When we put down out the list of, oh, here are the 12 teams that are rebuilding – uh, three of them turn out to be good. Yes. Two of them turn out to just to be clueless. Some other team that was supposed to not be rebuilding is terrible, and they start tanking. And also, if more than, I don't know, six teams rebuild, you can't rebuild because right. <laughs> you need to have the market advantage of you know getting first or second in the draft. Yeah, when the Astros and the Cubs were doing it, they kind of had it to themselves. They were the, the really terrible teams that were short-term tanking for long-term benefit. And the question was, when every team started copying their successful model, then would it not be successful anymore? Because you can't get the top draft picked if five other teams are doing what you're doing, and you'll just have a, a bunch of terrible teams, and not, old, not all of them will get good again on the other side. So that's sort of where we are right now. It's not clear that there's as much of an advantage to it, but if you are willing to lose for a while in the short term, it still benefits you because you can trade all your veterans and you can stockpile prospects. And so there are a few exciting teams today, like the Padres, for instance, who did sign Machado, but they signed Machado after after they built up maybe the best farm system that anyone's ever seen. And so those kind of those two things are, are happening at the same time and, and suddenly they're interesting again. Right. The problem has been though, and especially now I think, is that there are teams that may look like they're trying to rebuild and are tearing it all down, but in fact are just not spending money. And this is another complaint that will drag into the labor negotiations uh, in mm-hmm. 2020 and 2021. Yeah, there are a lot of teams talking about the competitive balance tax and we can't go over this threshold and that never plays well with fans because fans don't really care if the the billionaire who owns the team is going to be charged a a slightly higher tax rate on on the excess there. But we did see a lot of teams sort of sit on their hands over the winter and and part of that is because there is this imbalance, especially in the AL. So if you're the Astros or you're the Cleveland Indians, for instance, and no one's really pushing you, then you just don't have that much incentive to spend. But on on the other hand, if you spend, it can really lead to a lot of ticket sales. Like we saw when the Phillies finally landed Bryce Harper, they sold an enormous number of jerseys and an enormous number of season tickets. And so that actually can lead to a lot of excitement that pays right. off financially, but also makes your team more watchable. 
Or if you don't spend and you become like the Yankees of two years ago, you become this uh, underdog feel-good story because you overperform <laughs> your relatively cheap by historic standards expectation. Now we have the Red Sox with the highest payroll in baseball still trying to get under like the double secret probation threshold <laughs> for taxes. Um, it's almost like the NBA where you never trade a player. You just trade contracts and mm-hmm. are looking for a salary space. I mean, the whole the whole baseball talent evaluation has essentially become not playing the good players too much to keep them under control, not spending too much on players to keep the taxes under control, not putting the best or really managing when you put the best team on the field because doing it at the wrong time can hurt you. Yeah, the trades really have started to look like basketball trades where you just have all of these contingencies and you've got opt-outs and you've got options and what Scott Boris called a swell opt, which is weird and no one understands what he was talking about, but this unusual contract structure, and then you also have the the financial concerns, and so you've seen, for instance, Matt Kemp and Matt Kemp's contract have been traded for a couple consecutive off seasons. Not so much because of who Matt Kemp is as a player, but just to shift money <laughs> around, and he is right. uh, essentially just a, a walking contract who gets passed from one team to the next as it tries to get under this tax limit. All right, Although not entirely no. unrelated to who Matt Kemp is as a player, <laughs> like if he was if he was totally consistent, it would be maybe he wouldn't you know have the itinerant tour of the yes, West. Sure. <laughs> uh, Yasiel Puig's in Cincinnati. Shohei Otani is just going to be a hitter this year because he had Tommy John surgery in the off season. I am excited about those things. Ben Lindbergh, I know you are too. You write for the Ringer. You've written a new book, The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Everybody, go order it. We'll talk to you about that when it comes out, Ben. I hope so. coming on the show. Look forward to it. Thanks, guys. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. In January of 1969, Joe Namath and the New York Jets upset the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl III. Nine months later, the Mets pulled off the city's second sports miracle of the year, beating the mighty Orioles of Baltimore in five games to win the World Series. It's one of my earliest sports memories. My first grade teacher, Miss Kelly, wheeling an AV cart into the classroom and letting us watch a few innings of the final game, which was played on a Thursday afternoon at Shea Stadium. Here's Kurt Gowdy with the call of the final out. The 2-1 pitch. There's a fly ball hit out to left, waiting is Jones. The Mets are the world champions. Gary Kuzman being mobbed. Look at this scene. The scene was Mets fans storming the field and ripping up home plate and caps off of the players' heads to celebrate a championship just seven years after the franchise had debuted with a 40 and 120 record. It's been 50 years. It's been fucking 50 years. Mm-hmm. 50 years, that's a long time. <laughs> and Wayne Coffey has written a book. They said it couldn't be done. The 69 Mets, New York City, and the most astounding season in baseball history. Welcome to the show, Wayne. Thanks very much, Stefan. All right, let's put the 69 Mets into context, Wayne. The team was the result of the Dodgers and Giants moving from New York to California in the late 50s. The Mets were born in 1962 into some social chaos, the Bay of Pigs, the Cold War, the JFK assassination, civil rights violence. Our friend Robert Lipsight, who covered the team, noted in the New York Times last week, they ran a special section about the 69 Mets, that the Mets were an escape and the fans didn't seem to mind how terrible they were. It was kind of a badge of honor. They were better off losing in some ways. Lipsight quoted one of the famous bedsheet banners that hung at Shea Stadium. We don't want to set the world on fire. We just want to finish ninth. You're absolutely right, Stefan. They were a a complete phenomenon unto themselves. The Mets lost 737 games between 62 and 68. That's hard to do. And it's even harder to do and somehow become beloved in the process. And 
a lot of times, I mean, the Yankees, the fabled Yankees are the Yankees, but in 1969, the Mets outdrew the Yankees by more than two to one. Almost 2.2 million fans came through the turnstiles in Shea, and they were... They were happening. They were Howie Rose, the Mets' great broadcaster, said every, every night at the ballpark was like Woodstock. Yeah, well, I, you know, my, my sports guru, Mike Francesa, always says, well, you know, New York's a more National League town. And I have no idea how to assess that, except they did have two National League teams, and there was this wound when they were when both the Giants and Dodgers left. But is there, I do know that the 69 Mets captured the city much more than the Yankees did of their era. And I know the 86 Mets captured the city much more than the Yankees did of their era. Is there anything to New York being a National League town, do you think? You know, it, 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 it seems counterintuitive given the fact that the Yankees are baseball's uh, all-time winningest franchise, but I, I do think there's something to that. I do know that when the Dodgers and Giants left, it was, it was, just, it was just this massive gaping hole in people's hearts. One fan I talked to used to bike to Ebbets Field and on the day of their last game ever in Brooklyn, he biked, and he always loved to look up at the marquee on top of Evitt's Field where it said, next game, and the next game sign was blank. Mm. And he said, that, that's, when, that's when it really hit me. There well, would it, be no next game. I mean, look, it was just it's partly math. There were two National League teams, and hundreds of thousands of fans were left without something. So whatever the Mets were at their birth didn't really matter. But what was really what I think is kind of crazy about the Mets is something you alluded to earlier, Wayne, is that they were terrible up and through 1968. And 1969 was kind of the perfect setup. It was the 100th anniversary of baseball. It was the first year that there were divisions, um, Mm -hmm. two rounds of playoffs. Baseball had expanded again. It was the perfect year for a team that had not been good to be better. So the Mets went straight from mediocrity to the World Series. That's right. And they, it was really, uh, it's interesting. There were some parallels now with 2019 in the sense that there were a lot of people in 69 who were concerned about the health of baseball and, and, and its appeal to, to fans. It was, uh, attendance was down. And in the wake of the, uh, the year of the pitcher in 1968 with Bob Gibson's uh, ludicrous 1.12 ERA and, uh, National League, uh, I think the American League collective batting average was 230. I mean, it yeah. was there was absolutely no offense in the game that year, and so they lowered the mound, they uh, expanded the, uh, they shrunk the uh, the strike zone, and then there were uh, divisions. So there were there were big changes afoot, and and then uh, and people were worried, and then along came the. Uh, you know, the magical Mets, who uh, were suddenly no longer a laughing stock. Well, they still couldn't hit. No, they really couldn't hit, mm-hmm. and that's why. I mean, they, you know, they'll. They were uh, a statistical aberration in every way. They were at the bottom of almost all of the offensive categories in the league, but they they could pitch and they could catch the ball, and they were just just masterfully managed by Gil Hodges. How did it? Prove it. I mean, I know he's a colorful guy, but what did he do either managing the personalities or in-game decisions that maybe have been lost to his myth? You know, I, th- I think it was, it was both. Um, Mike, it, it was he, he, was a, he was a masterful strategist, but I think his real genius was in how he, how he handled people, how he connected with with the role players, the Al Weisses and Duffy Dyers and J.C. Martins, and and gave everyone ownership. He made everyone somehow feel important without it seeming like just a throwaway line. So that I remember Al Weiss telling me that my, my whole career, you know, basically people told me that I couldn't hit. And and so that's what I thought. And, you know, Al Weiss didn't even uh, – he hit his weight uh, that year, which is 160, but not a whole lot more. He was in the low 200s, but he also hit one of the biggest home runs in Met history in Game 5 of the World Series. And, and he talked about how just Hodges just instilled in him this belief. And he was also a switch hitter his whole career, and Hodges saw him in spring training and said, you're not switch hitting anymore. 
you know, I want you to just be a right-handed hitter. You're going to do better. And he did. You know what else helped? The fact that Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman went 17-1 and one from the middle yeah. of August to the end of the season. It's a, and it's and a ate up how to... many innings? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know 51 what? complete games for the staff. Games. 51 yeah, complete yeah. games for the Mets pitching staff, 51. which included Nolan Ryan. Yep, you wanted one of my favorite games of that year. This is just a little bit different from how baseball is. They, they played... Um, a game in the Giant uh, in August against uh, with the great Juan Marichal pitching for the Giants, and Marichal shut the Mets out through nine, through ten, through eleven, through twelve, through thirteen innings. Came out for the fourteenth inning and got his first two outs. The score is zero zero, and on his hundred and fifty first pitch of the game, Tommy Agee hit it over the wall, and the Mets won one nothing. <laughs> you know, someone mentioned to me recently he might, you know, he might get arrested today if, um, or the pitching coach might if they <laughs> yeah, allowed a guy yeah. throw 151 pitches. Yeah, think about that. Today, the pitching coach would get arrested for letting him throw 151, but he would legally be able to smoke marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to I want to get back to that point because I think, Mike, to your question, I think that it really was something different. You got to remember that New York was in the shitter in 1969. <laughs> yeah, Mayor Lindsay was a, a reviled figure who had botched, as Wayne reports in the book, um, this this snowstorm the previous winter um it was society was crumbling in the eyes of some people the new york times's headline after the mets won the world series in game five was mets win five three take the series and a grateful city goes wild this idea that it mattered somehow beyond just the quirky baseball team winning a championship they, and it it's it's so true and they had in game four so tom Seaver's pitching game four in shea at the the same day, it was the, the biggest anti-war demonstration in the history of the United States against the Vietnam War, including guy, people who were handing out leaflets outside of Shea Stadium with Tom Seaver's photo on it. Because even though Seaver was an was a ex-Marine, uh, like Gil Hodges, he, um, Seaver just thought that the war made no sense. And he, he, was, he basically said, if the, uh, you know, if the Mets can win the National League pennant or with the World Series, then the U.S. can get out of Vietnam. And uh, so Lindsay ended up, as an incumbent mayor, losing the, uh, the Republican primary. And what he did was, and his approval ratings were totally in the dumper, and he attached himself cleverly to the New York Mets, and he basically rode them all the way to re-election, even though the guy didn't know he didn't know Don Clendenin from Willie McCovey, but didn't really matter. All right, I got one last question for both of you guys. You are both Mets fans. I am not. Was 1969 the high point for this franchise? Bob Lipsight makes a good argument that it is. The Mets lost in the World Series in 73. 1986 was kind of a fluke, Pesca. I know it's important to you. They lost in the World Series to the Yankees in 2000. They lost in the World Series in 2015. Madoff, Tim Tebow. I mean, as a franchise, <laughs> in two World Series isn't bad, but your overall win percentage is like 480. Yeah, well, Madoff, Tebow, neither of those guys could hit righties. Um, you know, I'm not I sure think... if they've ever been in the same sentence together before, but that was impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I, I think it was, and uh, for a reason a little tangential to what you said, I mean, for me personally, uh, the Knicks, by the way, you know, within day, the Knicks 69-70 season starts within right. days of uh, the Mets in the World Series. And then you, and then the Knicks did have a championship technically in my lifetime because I was born in 71, but I wasn't old enough to remember it. So literally, Jets, Knicks, Mets, St. John's, one championship my entire lifetime. It was 86. Magical and special to me. But if I had to look at it from afar, I would say, well, the 86 championship was a little bit tinged with disappointment because it was never, they never became the dynasty or the perennial World Series content. You don't even have to be a multi Yankees-esque dynasty. Just look at the Braves, you know, going going to the World Series year after year. And so the 86 Mets was a little disappointing, whereas the 69 Mets were, from everything that Wayne reports and from everything I've read, out of the blue, pure joy, not at all polarizing, and therefore I would say that the, that the franchise has been chasing that ever since their, uh, what, seventh year in existence. Yeah, I would I would completely agree that the ticker tape parade 
that the city had for the Mets in in '69 was the largest. I think to this day it was the largest ticker tape parade, other than VJ Day at the end of uh, World War II, and and it was. It was just uh, an exhilarating, magical time in New York, even with with all of this, uh, all of this serious, seriously bad stuff going down. I mean, this was a team that just lost and lost and lost and lost, and was supposed to get their tails kicked by the uh, Orioles in the World Series, and they end up doing the unthinkable. Wayne Coffey's new book is titled They Said It Couldn't Be Done, The 69 Mets, New York City, and the Most Astounding Season in Baseball History. Wayne, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Please stick around for our Slate Plus bonus segment. We'll talk to Lindsey Gibbs of Think Progress about her recent profile of Notre Dame women's basketball coach Muffet McGraw. She knows this is the most powerful way to make this this statement at this point in her career. And this is this is why she's, I think, being so explicit about it. To hear that, you'll need to become a member of Slate Plus. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. And to listen to past shows and subscribe to this podcast, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Thank you to Mike Pesca for filling in for Josh Levine. I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>